Hi, and welcome to our podcast. My name is Megan. My name is Hannah. I'm Rachel. I'm Anna. And I'm Lauren. Today we're discussing The Meanest Flower by Mimi Havalki. Woodsworth's meanest flower that blows suggested to him thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. The lyrics, elegies, songs, and huzzals in Mimi Havalti's new book pay attention to things the imagination generally discards or disregards, an attention that is concentrated, intense, and unapologetically romantic. Hers is the true voice of feeling undeflected by irony or self-appreciation. There is rapture in those poems, as well as a tragic sense, nature, childhood, motherhood, and family relationships that all have a double balancy, a give and take to which Havalti witnesses with a feeling sharpened by love and grief. Mimi Havalti was born in Tehran, grew up on the Isle of Wight, and trained at Drama Centre London. She founded the Poetry School, where she continues to teach, as well as working as a freelance poetry tutor. She has held a Royal Literacy Fund Fellowship at City University London and a fellowship at the International Writing Program in Iowa. She received a Cholmondeley Award in 2006. So on page 49 of The Meanest Flower, the poem starts and it says, Come close, the flower says, and we come close. Come close enough to lift cup and smell the rose. Breathe in a perfume deep enough to find language for it, but words having grown unkind. Think back instead of a time before we knew what we know now. When every word was true and roses smelled divine. What went wrong? Long before the breath of a cradle song, some lives fall, some flower, and some are granted birthrights. A veranda, a sunken quadrant of old rose trees, a fountain dry as ground, but still a fountain. In sense, if not in sound, like a rose, she slept in the morning sun, each vein a small blue river, each eyelash shone. This poem stuck out to me because when we are young, we don't understand the words people say or the things they do, but as we grow up, we start to understand the big bad world, and it makes us wish to go back to our innocent childhoods. And then on page... 72, another poem says, He's wearing a red silk shirt, my son. He's done a dreadful hurt, my son. Now that the devil has shown his face, he's hiding under my skirt, my son. A mother is earth, but earth is sick. A mother, nothing but dirt, my son. The floor of the gym is strewn with limbs. Children are lying in hurt, my son. Uh, I see lights, he says. Hear voices, too. Obscenities to pervert my son. Don't look at the lights, the voice is yours. What can I say to alert my son? Don't look at the world, a beast that kills. A savage you can't convert my son. What happened to trust? Don't screen your eyes. Green eyes you always avert my son. White roses have buried, Beslin's dead. Mother, don't let me desert my son. And this poem really stuck out to me because it goes through a time a timeline as a mother is trying to raise her son and then how he comes back to her for help raising his own son. And I think these two poems are connected with the mother-son and family dynamic. 
Uh, what do you guys think of each individual poem and then how they're connected to one another? So in that first poem, Come Close, I underlined the line, some lives fall, some flower. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was sad and pretty. And it's also interesting to think about um, what Hannah was saying about childhood. Like, um, doesn't always, like, it's kind of like a melancholy way to talk about childhood, I thought. Mm -hmm. but. Another thing that I was thinking for that one on 72, um, Guzzle My Son, um, we were reading a little bit about the guzzle form of poetry and it comes from Persia and also the word literally translates to um, speaking to women mm -hmm. so it's interesting to like with the motherhood theme and the son and then that type of poem. Also me too I really like that it does like the full simple like the son coming back to the mother like mm -hmm. the piano pointed out because mm -hmm. I think that shows that the life of a mother doesn't stop once there's not a child in the house anymore, you know? Yeah, on the one my son on 72, I'm kind of trying to follow. I mean, I read it and circled it like, you know, it was one I was contemplating a little bit. But I was kind of trying to follow what we think the stream of events is here, you know, because she says... Um, he's done me a dreadful hurt, my son. He's hiding under my skirt, my son. Um, a mother's nothing but dirt, my son. Children are lying inert, my son. Obscenities to pervert, my son. What can I say to alert, my son? Um, a savage you can't convert, my son. Green eyes you always avert, my son. Mothers don't let me desert, my son. I, I feel like in some ways... You know, it's, is she being critical of him for choices or is she feeling like he is being judged by others? Um, I don't know. I kind of I I struggled with what to make of that piece. Mm. For me, it kind of relates back to what Lauren said. It was like a melancholy way of looking at life. I think this is, to me, with what how Hannah kind of, the direction she took it and the way that you pointed out, it kind of makes me feel like it's a mom who's trying to be very blatantly honest with her child that, you know, because of who you are, this is going to be so hard in life. Yeah. And I want you to be entirely prepared for it, like, throughout the entire thing. Especially with the, like, um, green eyes, you'll always avert my son. Mm -hmm. That one, that line kind of made me feel like the mom, the mother is just being like, you're, you're going to be shunned by some people. But... I also read this like maybe it is almost like a death scene because in the very center that um, one, it says, I see light, he says, hear voices too. And then it's obscenities to pervert my son. And the way those that I see light, hear voices too is in italics. It's like, is he in some kind of a death type place mm -hmm. where he's, you know, because before that, it's saying they're in a gym, there's limbs strewn about and stuff. So is he... At the point, like some point of death where like, you know, I see a light at an end of a tunnel and she's like, you know, doesn't want him to go that direction. I don't know. I kind of struggled. I think there are a couple um, of different ways I think you guys have touched on uh, to read 
like what you're saying with I see lights, he mm-hmm. says your voices too. That's right after the line about the floor of the gym is strewn with limbs. Children are lying inert, my son. And and that could be a reference to a lot of the um, the casualties or like the violence that was taken upon like schools, like the bombings of schools yeah. in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read that mm-hmm. as kind of like a mom protect, trying to protect her son. But yeah. also um, the line before that, reads a mother is earth but earth is sick mm-hmm. a mother's nothing but dirt my son so it could also be talking about um the the children of the world like some are like begetting violence and some are the victims and so it's maybe it's speaking to like a different two types of sons or two types of people in the world those that um those that commit violence and those that are the victims of it yeah well before even that line she says now the devil has shown his face Mm -hmm. so there is there's this kind of a negative build-up that seems to reach a climax about the point where we see the italicized i see lights and hear voices too and then after that it's like she's saying to him don't look at the lights Mm -hmm. the voice is yours like trying to draw him back from some precipice mm-hmm. where he's kind of standing upon. And we're, we're looking at like a mother-son relationship and the fact that she so chose son instead of daughter might say a lot about how men are so often the ones that um, commit violent crimes and like start these kind of really violent um, factions and, and, and revolutions and stuff, especially like in Iran and like, the, yeah, I mean, I everywhere so really. And so it could be talking about how it's just interesting that she chose son and not daughter. Mm-hmm. But I like what you pointed out and that it's kind of like not that all men are the yeah. violence. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, but I like kind of, cause I think that reminds that I like just draw my attention to the last one, line, like mother do not let me desert my son. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like she's taught him all these things. Like, don't mm-hmm. do this. Like, this is what's happening in the world. Try not to do that. Mm-hmm. And then he's coming back and he's being like, please don't let me do that. Don't let me do that and leave, end up leaving my son. Mm-hmm. You know? So I just looked up the reference at the end. Um, White roses have buried yeah. Beslin's yeah. dead. I was wondering about that. And that was, so it was in Russia. Yeah. And it was a school siege where um, oh, it was on yeah. September 1st, 2004. And 1,100 people, including 770 children, were imprisoned illegally by Islamic militants. And there was 334 people killed, including 186 children. So it's... Um, so that's intense. So yeah. like, um, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder too about like um, these like dual sort of like with the speaking to the dead and to the perpetrators of mm-hmm. crimes at the same time. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. If it was an Islamic militant group and like the ways in which we, you know, when something like that happens, people start getting racially profiled, and yeah. so like speaking to your own son as like a vulnerable person in that, and then also and like these were children that were killed. Like it's just so complicated yeah. and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Well, and I do wonder about um, that when you said the word racial profiling, it made me think of that one that we were talking about. 
where is it where uh, she says the Shylock? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I on that I was I'm trying to find it because I put a little note beside it because I was... 21. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because in that one she says Scrooge. Yeah. Uh, Scrooge, Shylock is crying out for his jewels, blah, blah, blah. Um, and... My thought when I saw that, I was like, is this an ethnic slur or like you said, kind of profiling, stereotyping what was occurring here? And yeah, you know, maybe she is kind of trying to draw our attention on quite a few of the pieces Mm -hmm. to how that happens, how that kind of that stereotyping begins. And, you know, yeah, interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. Did we want to go into Anna's piece on 71 next, maybe? Yeah. So the poem that I chose to discuss was on page 71. It's called Guzzle, The Children. The children are not ours, but the child they might have been is in their eyes. The children live in camps, but the freedom they have seen is in their eyes. The children wear boleros, beads, and caftans, tribal paint and feathers, sandals in the snow, and hijab as white as snow, whose sheen is in their eyes. The children stand with younger children on their hips and their arms, like animals at grass stopping in a day's routine is in their eyes. The children hold belongings, pens and notebooks, blankets, shoes, saucepans, and their fingers tell us stories, and what these stories mean is in their eyes. The children are not ours, but you... Salgado have brought them this close, this far. I stand within a hand's breadth, and the world that lies between is in their eyes. Um, the note on that in the back of the book talks about Salgado, who, whose photograph she's referencing in the poem, um, the photographs of migrant and refugee children, and there were in an exhibit called Exodus, um, mm. the Barbican Center mm. in London. Okay. Um, I think it can be really difficult to to view photos or texts or or view view a culture or something that's happened to a culture of people um, without becoming kind of a voyeur. Especially mm-hmm. when you're looking at a photo and you're going to an exhibit or an art gallery or something that's elevated and kind of remaining a witness and not a voyeur. Um, and I just kind of wanted to talk about and discuss with you guys how we think she is doing, whether or not it's successful. She's talking about, she's kind of placing thoughts in these children's heads. Mm-hmm. And I think some of them, it's, I think some of it's really thoughtful. And I just wonder um, kind of what, whether she's leaning on a voyeuristic side of, of viewing things by creating a poem out of it, or if it's kind of more thoughtful and kind of bearing witness to the atrocities and the displacement that these children are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is troubling. I hadn't realized what the, and it, you know, makes the poem a little more clear in your eyes, mm-hmm. you know, when you realize that she's looking at images. I wrote a paper quite a few years ago on photography and how um, images can mislead us. 
and there's a lot of problems with like us uh, trying to come to some kind of a conclusion about something based on seeing an image because um, you know it really delves so much into the context of where the picture was taken but with photography you got to think about it's not just what you're seeing on you know like an image in an image but what aren't you seeing because the photographer chooses to exclude you know what they're going to focus in on is going to be a set thing and they might be excluding like a larger context you're just seeing one little tiny shot you know but you don't really know what all the surrounding um you know was occurring with it so it does yeah. it's kind of like it's troubling how do you, a little bit yeah it is it troubles me too now that i realize yeah. what this poem is about i think at one sense you can go to a gallery and you can see pictures of of migrant workers or, or like refugee encampments and and you can focus in on the image that might be most aesthetically pleasing to you like a child mm -hmm. and you're focusing on this child's eyes because you think that it's really beautiful and you look at that blip for a second and then you move on you're left with the impression of like the child's gaze and not necessarily like the events surrounding that and so and then also you're viewing it from a level of removal um, you know, you're in a gallery, you're from like, you're, there's a removal there, like you're mm -hmm. in a safe space. So there's some distance between you and what's actually happening in the real world right, right now. It's mm -hmm. not historical, but it's like at that time, like there are still those children out there. And especially when you're, you're focusing on a real subject, it's, it's difficult to remain, um, to remain thoughtful about it and not look at it as just a piece of art that someone is selling on a canvas and mm -hmm. to then create art from that, like her poem. Um, I think it's just really needs to be done really delicately. And, and I think some of these lines I, I appreciated and some of those lines made me stop and think like, what does this, what purpose does this serve? Like the, um, the third stanza that says, the children stand mm -hmm. with the younger children on their hips in their arms like animals at grass stopping in a day's routine mm -hmm. is in their eyes so mm -hmm. comparing them to animals yeah that's bothersome is it dehumanizing to mm -hmm. do that i mean mm -hmm. I, I don't i don't know and and ch children stand with younger children on their hips like i think when you read that line you kind of tugs on your heartstrings a little bit, but we don't really realize that a lot of these children are orphaned and now they're taking care of children younger than them. So they're forced into a type of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And we focus on like, oh, that's that's so beautiful and 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 you are seeing the terrible side but of we're not seeing why they had to do that. Their their parents are dead or their parents can't take care of them. So I don't know. I think it's it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Like I, I um also like I, I don't know. Like the um the one line that she keeps using, the children are not ours, but like I mm -hmm. think that kind of encapsulates some of the tension. Is like these aren't our children, but we're here, mm -hmm. and to not say something about what you've seen or um, witnessed, mm -hmm. what does that mean? But then when you do, like some of these things, like their fingers tell us stories and what these stories mean is in their eyes. Like she's not saying that they understand the stories, but she is saying that they can view them. Mm -hmm. And I do um, think it's like, uh, 
I don't even know. Like it's, it's just hard. really it's um I don't want to pick apart her work. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's also something that everyone who comes from a privileged place as myself struggles with when they are trying to interact with something that is is so difficult. Mm -hmm. Um it represented in art or any other kind of medium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, but you know, she is, yeah. Cause the troubling thing, like in the next to last stanza, the last three sentences, their fingers tell us stories and what these stories mean is in their eyes. And so we are, we have decided that there is a story that's being told to us. We, whoever is looking at, you know, the, the images has mm -hmm. made a decision and that's kind of like an ocular proof. You know, I'm looking at this image and this image is telling me, and I think that images even more strongly than words, uh, kind of like force, not forces, but cause us to like kind of double down on what our opinion of something is. Well, I saw it. You know, it is true. I saw it myself, you know, and it's different than words, you yeah, know. So, and so you, if you get the wrong idea about, well, what is the story that the fingers are telling us or what is the story that their eyes are telling us, you've convinced yourself because I saw it, but you've misconstrued the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You put too much faith in what you saw. We also take ownership of things when they're captured, like when we take a photograph of something we take ownership in that and then when the people view it or read it or reading these poems we you know she's written this poem about these children so in some way she's taken kind of ownership over that and then by reading we've also taken ownership over these images and these actual people by extension but um it kind of leaves me like wanting because it's like i'm aware of these things now but it, it it just leaves me kind of feeling a little helpless. Like mm -hmm. I don't know how to, I don't have a solution for, yeah. for how to make people be responsible for what they're, what they're taking in, what they're consuming, whether it's a photograph or poems or media. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's kind of the struggle. I think it's interesting too, because this makes me think of, Hitting Budapest, exactly. yeah, you know, exactly. the lady from London taking the photo of the kids mm -hmm. who came from paradise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a sort of like voyeurism, like a cultural voyeurism, and I, I don't know where the line is, and I don't know where where it's crossed, and I'm not sure if it's crossed here. Some stanzas do seem to cross it. Some, mm -hmm. some seem to be thoughtful. Um, and even like the like I'm reading this book right now called Scenes of Subjection, um, where she talks a lot about like empathy over like another's experience mm -hmm. you kind of like um like you obviously don't want to interact with history in a way that's like so detached like it makes sense that we feel things when yeah. we hear of others experiences but then when you like have empathy like you end up taking another's body like you use like she specifically is talking about um enslaved people and it's like you reiterate that like logic that yeah. pressed them by acting like you can just project yourself into their body and yeah. take over it yeah. um and so with all these things about like looking into the kids eyes um it made me think of that like what are like um like even if you are being thoughtful or like you are using empathy mm -hmm. and then like what is that for like 
that's happening a lot now with like people trying to push for changes and how yeah. we do things is like people are people are stupid like they can't just hear like oh we have children detained but not us we should stop doing that they need to see the picture of yeah. the child detained or else it's not yeah. real to them no. and so like it's a powerful like stories move people to action but yeah. it also just seems like there should be another way beyond yeah. just like because it also like you said it can be misleading yeah. and yeah. it can also just like um you jump to like solutions that mm -hmm. may not help and also mm -hmm. it's like you shouldn't have to like because then you're kind of saying like i can only care about something if mm -hmm. i can feel it and right. so then you're privileging your own like experience of something instead of just knowing it's happening and wanting to do something about it you have to be like oh that could be my kid so mm -hmm. now it's serious and it's like well it was serious when it had nothing to do with you at all mm -hmm. like but mm -hmm. i don't know how you like it's like sometimes the empathy is we we use empathy to mitigate our own feelings of guilt about something mm -hmm. or about an inaction and so we really have to like wrestle with is this empathy is this feeling of empathy for myself or is it for someone else is it to alleviate some sort of guilt I have whether it's personal or a cultural guilt or is it because I is it to spur me in action mm -hmm. and oftentimes it's it's the former yeah and then the experience of the thing can feel like you did the thing it's like oh well i watched the documentary about so, it yeah. i experienced i felt this experience i tended to that thing but really all you did was have like an emotional reaction to something yeah. in your own body mm -hmm. and that thing is still happening mm -hmm. um but now you felt like you had this sort of like endorphin rush or whatever like oh i went through something and it's like all you had to do is see a reality um and taking on someone else's suffering or pain isn't the same as as contributing or trying to to help it to alleviate it it's not and I, I feel like that's where we fall into with a lot of diaspora texts is we want to take part in it some way and, and that the only way we know how and everyone does this. The only way that we know how to do that is to try to empathize with it in a way of like imagining ourselves in that situation. But then we kind of project mm -hmm. ourselves onto that. And that still kind of can get really dangerous mm -hmm. or yeah. problematic, I guess. Yeah, I think it opens the door for imposing your own personal narrative mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. acknowledging and let me say like in, like acknowledging and kind of like respecting another's mm -hmm. narrative so yeah it's kind of hard it's like it's certainly balance. a step up from you know from just shutting the door as a culture as a as a country on other countries problems mm -hmm. but now we're in this world where we're so interconnected we, we need to figure out a responsible way to participate and have a cultural exchange without it turning into a, a taking or like um exercising power over something mm -hmm. else or it's, it's really hard and I don't have a solution it just made me think of of kind of a lot of what we're struggling with in class and and not to pick apart this author in any way because I think this is really a beautiful poem but mm -hmm. I just it makes me examine myself and, and like our classroom mm -hmm. as well as our culture and how we do that and whether or not it's successful. 
Well, I think we should examine it. And I'm not saying that in a critical voice to any one author in particular, but we are all guilty of looking at an image and being, like you said, moved. You have an emotional experience, but one image, one snapshot in one millisecond of time or one video that, you know, somebody filmed about some catastrophic event is not the whole picture. And photographers and videographers and all that, they have agendas too. You know, they have points of view and that is being reflected in the images they choose. And, and so then the more steps away you get from it, like looking at an image, well, like you said, it wasn't you there. It was somebody with the camera. They had an agenda when they were there. So that kind of removes them. You know, they're altering the image. Then you're looking at it you know, like third person, and you're taking away something else based on your emotional experience, and it gets very separated from the reality sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I think we do. We, it's good to analyze and be a little critical, not yeah. like criticize, but just be critical. You know, what do we think of this? What do we think of this response? And I think this poem, especially with its reference to Salgado, it, it points, there's more emphasis on the photographer than there is on the children and the children kind of blur she's talking about boleros which mm. i think are south american yeah right hats mm -hmm. beads and caftans tribal paint and feathers which that is that a i don't know indigenous reference or mm -hmm. maybe um and then sandals in the snow and hijab there's so many different cultures going on that they're mm -hmm. referencing and then in the back where it talks about salgado's work it talks about migrant children and refugee children so even in those that's so many different um possible um types of children that they're referencing so it doesn't it's not just talking about one child and it blurs them and it kind of takes the importance off of them and it places it more on the work and the body of work of the photographer yeah because mm -hmm. he's the only one named right he's a yes, particular it says at the end that children are not ours but you Salgado, have brought them this close this far that implies that he is it's like he's carrying these children on mm -hmm. on his shoulders to these galleries it just it, i don't know it's just something about that is unsettling to me i almost wonder like the, the directness of that line i wonder if maybe her poem is trying to criticize his work or like that element of it, do you think? I would like to think that, <laughs> but I don't want to give it that much credit. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice, but I, from the rest of the poem, I don't, Yeah, I, I'm just not yeah. sure. It's it's a lot to accomplish with one poem. Mm -hmm. And I think that mm -hmm. you, you could have chosen one, one child, focused in on one, one, what a crisis on one child and instead it's trying to bring all these together like they're the same mm -hmm. like all these children have experienced the same things and that's just not what happens yeah well and then on that same last stanza and she says i stand within a hand's breadth and that bothers me a little bit <laughs> because i'm like how is looking at an image that a photographer brought you from maybe somewhere on the opposite side of the planet put you within a hand's breadth of that experience mm -hmm. it doesn't mm -hmm. it can't you know so yeah and again to, say, I, to your point lauren it could have it could be speaking to it could be a little like tongue-in-cheek like yeah. this is what a lot of people yeah uh, from more pri privileged societies experience when they go to galleries mm -hmm. that that work with um difficult subjects like this and 
the closest that we feel with something that has no that we don't have any connection to could be something that she's trying to like get us to, to realize through like the satire of that last stanza. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I wish it were that way. And that's not really how I read it, Yeah, but it would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to project that, you know, she's, I mean, that's really would be smart to do. I don't want to say that she is, did, did that, but it would be. No, I'm glad you chose that poem. That was great because that was interesting to kind of reflect on that one a lot. Yeah. So um, we were just talking a bit about empathy and like some of the challenges of like viewing images. And I think this ties into the poem that I picked for today because it talks about different ways of knowing things. Um, Anyways, it's on page 46 and it's called Water Blinks. From the height of a child, the shortened height of a child. Oh, the dogs are fighting. <laughs> that was a guest appearance from the dogs. <laughs> Theodora and Augustus. Okay. From the height of a child, the shortened height of a child stooping, massed along wet banks, opening only when the light grows bright. All the infinitesimal eyes of blinks in water seem, not as you might think, larger by proximity, but more like shrinking funnels a child might feel herself sucked into, emerging into a fiery wheel of suns until she knows in a flash how the whole world spins. Stars have their origin in gravity, just as the budding scientist, impatient to know how voltage works, becomes, imagines himself, the transformer, and as the current runs through him, understands electricity. So I was um, thinking about this when we were talking about the um, experience, like when you take on something that's not happening to you emotionally Mm -hmm. and um, just kind of like one of the elements of that, that I think makes it so different is like, you're not, there's nothing at stake for you. Like there's no risk that you're undergoing Mm -hmm. and you can just stop it. And I thought this was interesting because it was talking about like uh the jump to embodiment being like even in this like imagining it but then feeling a current run through Mm -hmm. and then that that leads to like an understanding of electricity that the scientists couldn't get as quickly through like studying Mm -hmm. so well and also just maybe different ways of having an experience Mm -hmm. you know there's just there's more than one path um to understanding how voltage works. Yeah. I mean, you know, and yeah. that is like a really extreme path that would seem to let a current run through your body so that you could better understand. But there's definitely all kinds of paths that you can take to that kind of a level of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of something that we talked about a little bit last quarter in my digital humanities class. Like, um, the ways of learning that we have now with like different technologies and machines and stuff. But, um, what was I, I swear I was going to say something and I can't remember. The <laughs> yeah. Like, um, just like we recognize such a narrow window of what learning is or like what reading can be. And, like, as you think about, like, um, machines and, like, machine learning and databases, it just, like, really starts to make you think about some of these things we take for granted as, like, 
central to learning, like a narrative、mm. or like an image, and like、um, we are reading about like、uh, databases, like all this stuff, like where you have like you start thinking about what the human can perceive and not perceive,、mm-hmm. and I don't know. Well, and that getting off somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> no, but that that carries over into a lot of ways, and I think it's relevant just in that we all learn differently. And like you、yeah. said, we've got some really newfangled—that's <laughs> an old person saying that—newfangled <laughs> ways of learning things nowadays. But even just thinking of like, for me, it was like when I was a kid. Do you learn better by hands-on? By like, you know, when if somebody tells you. I'm going to teach you how to, you know, make spaghetti sauce. Are you going to learn better by just picking up a cookbook and reading the recipe? Are you going to learn better by watching somebody doing it? Are you going to learn better by going into the kitchen and chopping onions and tomatoes and putting the pot on the boil and doing it hands on?、Mm-hmm. And now we've got like more new ways of doing it. Like you said, technology. Now you could look up. Spaghetti sauce, and maybe find a recipe and watch it online. And、mm-hmm. you know, it's just these evolving different kinds of ways and how we learn and absorb things and and can incorporate them into our lives.、Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But I like how you kind of started it, like、um, connected it to the empathy that we were talking、mm-hmm. about earlier. Especially since it's like impatient to know how voltage works、mm-hmm. becomes imagines himself.、Mm-hmm. So she clarifies he's not literally becoming.、Mm-hmm. Um, the transformer, but rather imagining himself, and I think that takes the extra step into emphasizing that, you know, he could look at charts, he could look at all the, hello, could look at all the like information, but you know, he's not actually going to understand it until he feels it racing through his body,、mm-hmm. even though that is the most extreme way to learn something,、mm-hmm. you know. So there is that like idea that we can't understand something on a Basic level without having that emotional experience, or, yeah,、mm-hmm. which is what I really think you're. I think I, if I understand right, that's how you're kind of tying it to the empathy we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like an embodied, like, like experiential、mm-hmm. knowledge, but then also thinking like she does say like becomes and then sets apart, imagines himself,、yeah. and I was immediately、yeah. just like, well. Like who? Do, like if like let's say you didn't imagine yourself, but like genuinely electrocuted yourself. Like you learned something about electricity that you can't learn from reading about it、mm-hmm. or studying it. But those kinds of like experiential things are often like in academia devalued as like a、yeah. learning experience. Like、mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about in classes where like people dismiss things because like oh it's not peer reviewed or like、mm-hmm. um, oh that's from your experience and it's like. There has to be a way to like combine experiential knowledge that is real, not like your body learns something、yeah. when you experience、yeah. these things that、mm-hmm. relate to what you're reading,、mm-hmm. with like,、um, I don't know, personal perspective versus scientific, not even scientific, but like impersonal perspective, which、mm-hmm. oftentimes in, in in higher education is valued more as because we're we're viewing it from. A distance,、mm-hmm. and so we're able to be kind of,、uh, you know, allegedly we're you know we're able to be more、um, impartial.、I、yeah, guess, and, and and I'm just so interested in like how those lines are constantly blurred. Like there is、yeah. no impartial observer to anything. Yeah, like、exactly. when we're talking about reading, it's like you're you are reading, so you're changing it by like,、mm-hmm. and then things that are more explicit with that, it's just like oh well, that's like.、Um, 
you know, that's not peer reviewed. That's mm-hmm. unfounded. You just got electrocuted. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, you kind of get electrocuted just when you're reading because mm-hmm. you're there. You're mm-hmm. like, you're going to read differently than someone right. else and yeah. you create the text that you read. So, yeah. Yeah. I think what you said about even us just reading it is taking. What did you say? There's no impartial. There's no impartial thing. And even just as reading, we're like influencing mm-hmm. what it is. But going back to Anna's poem, like even just our author for this book, yeah, she's giving us a picture of a picture, mm-hmm. yeah, for us exactly. to imitation of yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a picture by a photographer, and then we have a poem. So there's like, yeah, there's just like no way to learn that isn't that. Like even if you're like in science, like we see science change. All the time. So we used to think this because some guy discovered it. And then we were like, well, actually, you know, so it's like everything is embodied. Like there's Mm -hmm. no non-embodied knowledge. But then when someone foregrounds that, it gets dismissed because it's like um, emotional or whatever. But um, like you're still doing that. Like, yeah, everything is personal. Yeah. That's why discussion is so valued because... You can read the same poem, but everyone is going to have a different mm-hmm. outlook on it. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. It's like even the author does. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we bring our, our life experiences to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like um, one that I was talking about that I wanted to discuss in a minute. And like Lauren and I were talking about it before, you know, we, everybody was here and we started and, you know, she read it one way or, you know, just thought, wow, that's a beautiful poem. And I just like put a whole different meaning into it. Mm-hmm. And it's just based on like maybe my age and my experience in life and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, we view it yeah. differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I think embodied is a good word to use for it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the poem I want to look at is on page 32 and it's like a section of a very long poem, um, but the poem's called The Mediterranean of the Mind. But I like the second section, which is on 32. It says, playing at house is divine. What would one do with handfuls of lavender picked on the hill? I like the mixture of frugality and generosity, both of the village and landscape. Lemons have spilled to circle their trunks and wild pomegranate silhouette. Yeah, yeah, Craig's. Small and profuse white figs, ripe when they're splitting their skin, are there for the reaching and almonds galore that refuse to crack. Fresh limes, too, and persimmons. persimmons. Green on the tree with the callow bloom that will still be on them when they're red. And people ill-formed in the ways of persimmons will eat them, thinking they're ripe, and pull a face. They are vessels for jam and properly eaten only when the vessel's skin is thin as glass and is clear. The local delicacy is Turon, a blending of sugar, almonds, orange blossom, white, egg white, and honey, from bees that have dined solely on rosemary, though how they police the bees, I have no idea. So this, I like this segment of this poem because the imagery that she, like, um, brings at the beginning is so like beautiful mm. but then she kind of brings in this like outsider's perspective like with the persimmons like the person doesn't know how to eat them so they eat them too ripe mm-hmm. and they want to try the local delicacy 
and it's kind of like, so it starts with this beautiful landscape and all this, um, as she says, like frugality and generosity. But then I love that she just throws in that there's this, it's this outsider in this place. Mm-hmm. So. And I also just like the line, though how they police the bees, I have no idea. Some, hum- humor, Some humor in there. Mm-hmm. Some humor. Because, like, <laughs> I can tell. like, if you say, because then I think that also, like, plays on, like, the outsider perspective. Because it's like, mm-hmm. when you ask, go to a different place, and you say, can I try the delicacy? And like, oh, it's all these things. And... And then bee honey from bees that only eat rosemary. And then she throws in, how are you going to police bees? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's kind of like the someone accepting like this exotic delicacy. But then her being like, do you honestly believe that they're going to be able to police a bunch of bees and only let them have rosemary? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, one of them might have had a rose. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like yeah. that. Yeah, some of the, you know, this kind of ties for me when you were reading it, it ties in a little bit to, uh, again, to um, leaving Budapest, Mm -hmm. um, where she was talking about the guavas at a certain point and then chewing the seeds and it made her constipated and, you know, like how you react to certain kinds of food. Um, And like you said, you know, persimmons, you know, they want to eat them thinking they're ripe, but they're not really. And so then they pull a face. Um, I don't know if there's some kind of a tie-in there to, like, you know, we want to try new and exotic things we haven't mm-hmm. tried before, but we don't know what they are. And so it kind of ties into the bigger picture of when you're not familiar with a culture or a people or you want to immerse yourself in it, but yet you're not familiar with the thing that you're mm-hmm. trying to immerse yourself into and you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, you do things the wrong way. You eat the fruit the wrong time. I mean, but it... it has bigger implications of ways yes. that we can make mistakes and there's almost this idea of exoticizing fruit which like lemons we see pretty regularly <coughs> and what other lavender we see pomegranates like those things aren't foreign to us but this there's the idea that oh we're in this exotic place where they all come from so mm-hmm. they're, now they're yeah. exotic and they're so fun and I want to explore them when you know where we are, we could go to Frontmire or Safeway and get um, lemons and other fruit. It's come to me to be really funny to think of things as exotic. And I'll give you a quick example, and I'm not trying to, like, wander real far off topic. But the first time that I went to Ghana, mm-hmm. um, uh, a cousin of who ended up being my husband, um, his name is Enoch. Enoch went out walking with me one day, and so I said to Enoch, you know, what kind of fruits do you have here locally? You know, because I had an idea, but I wasn't really certain of everything that grew there. And he said, oh, well, you know, we have the papaya and the mango and this and that. And then we have the exotic fruits. We have apples. And I just died oh, laughing yeah. because mm-hmm. apples are so commonplace yeah. here. Yeah. And so it kind of made me start thinking, like, with my critical mind about, why do we call things exotic? What is exotic? Because yeah, because exotic, exotic to me is not exotic to him in Ghana. To yeah. me, mangoes and papayas are kind of exotic. I mean, we yeah. see them in the grocery store, but they're exotic. Mm-hmm. But to him, an apple was exotic. An exotic, mm-hmm. you know, they I'm like they grow on a tree in my yard, and he was just shocked. They yeah. do, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, ex- terms like exotic are kind of sticky for me. They, you know, I have trouble 
like framing because there is no real exotic because exotic here is not exotic there. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I love that story so mm -hmm. much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exotic apples. And yeah. So this like, yeah, the exotic persimmon that the yeah. local people know when to eat it yeah, when it's right. Yeah. You know. I think exotic is a kind of just a sticky word in general. Yeah. But I think it's something that we like to use to label something mm -hmm. from a different culture. I don't think that necessarily staples it that that culture is exotic to everyone. Yeah. I think it just kind of no, like notes that it's something we don't experience. It's something like I don't really like I don't really like the word either just because it it creates such a divide between people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, oh, that place is so exotic. And it's like, well, those are just people. Those are just families. Those yeah. are just lives. You know, they're... That's everyday that's life. That's everyday yeah. life. Yeah. But I think it, it's in in terms used to describe, I think it. I want to use it just because it's the idea that there's this outside, outsider yeah. in a place that's, you know, commonplace. And it's like this landscape that just happens to be there. Yeah. You know, it didn't poof into yeah. existence for them yeah. to enjoy. So, well, yeah, I wasn't criticizing your use of it. No, yeah. we do. We all use it. But I've been, you know, spending a lot of time over the last couple of years no, yeah. thinking about that word a lot. Like, and I think what you, is exotic? And I kind of have. And you, I think you bring up a great point. You know, it, there's no actual. There is no exotic. Yeah. I think it also gets used a lot to like fetishize things that we yeah. don't understand. Yeah. Like I hear it applied a lot to like people in like oh, a yeah. sexual way. That's just like really creepy. Yeah. Oh, that, that is, is really creepy. Yeah. But. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, thank you for taking us all down now. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> That's exactly where we're headed. Uh, <laughs> but I think that this poem is interesting in contrast to the other ones. Like it seems lighter. Like starting with playing at house mm -hmm. and then like the mm -hmm. stakes are like oh they're gonna eat it at the wrong time and they'll go like oh um but it's like there's it's like a much more playful poem like mm -hmm. it seems much lighter like yeah I, the yeah. I was thinking about I, I was curious on what the other part of the poem was so um, i was looking at that the page before for mm -hmm. one i think we might read because it gives a kind of different setting to the poem i know that 32 is just like really beautiful to read. It's yeah. almost like it's describing like an Eden. Mm -hmm. It's all these like plentiful like fruits and like the trees are overripe and they're spilling all these fruits on the ground and there's just like everything is uh, the second stanza. I like the mix of frugality and generosity, both of the village and the landscape. Um, and it's just talking about how clean and beautiful and plentiful everything is the page before at the bottom uh where it's italicized i guess i'll just read the, the okay. whole page but um the poem starts out it's not just the heat and sunlight i love so much in this landscape as the whiteness of the ground glare of limestone occasional shells among stone and rubble ground feeling lighter than sky as though heaven were already here and real and detailed White dust rims my toenails. The peaks of the farm mountains are so thick and mist, one can't tell if they're flat-topped or belled. Villagers in their mind's eyes supply the missing crowns, their true shapes, and cockerels point of the compass, points of the compass. And then in italicized letters, it says, everywhere else, death is an end. Death comes, and they draw the curtains. 
not in Spain. In Spain, they open them. Many Spaniards live indoors till the day they die and are taken out in the sunlight. The duenda does not come at all unless he sees that death is possible. The duenda must know beforehand that he can serenade death's house and rock those branches we all wear, branches that do not have and will never have any consolation. The italicized part really kind of brings it back to, um, it, it just is so different than like the Eden that, that they describe and the, like she talks about in the first and the last parts, the, the whiteness of the landscape, like the, just the beauty. Um, and then in the third stanza, she says, as though heaven were already here. And so like that second page of the poem that Megan's talking about kind of is detailing a heaven where there's no shortage of anything, everything's like ripe and beautiful. And then it talks about death in this italicized portion. Everywhere else, death is, is an end. Death comes and they draw curtains, not in Spain. In Spain, they open them. Hmm. I'm wondering if on the top, you know, now that you kind of pointed that out, mm -hmm. um, it almost feels like the top where it's not in italics is kind of the romanticizing it. It's all being romanticized and how we're looking at things kind of from a distance, even if that's, I'm sorry, that sounds weird. It's not like as a foreigner. Okay. So imagine this scenario um, as a child, maybe every time you went to your grandparents' house, uh, you would walk to the same beach every week and yeah. spend time at that beach. And so then as an adult, you revisit it in your mind and you always romanticize it. You take all the best experiences you have, maybe over 10, 20 years of going there, you and they become one experience that is this romanticized, perfect experience. And then you get down to the italicized words, and it kind of pulls you back into that bright, glaring light of reality mm -hmm. um, where it's not being romanticized. But in reality, like this is the romantic vision of it, and then you get to the italics and maybe it's like, but this is the reality of what's happening. I don't know. I'm just wondering if that's mm -hmm. kind of what's happening here with this. I don't know if I'm right. It's just a thought that went through my mind. I think what is also interesting is that is the only italicized part mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in this entire poem. And this poem is... I believe 11 pages long. So in the back, um, where there's sometimes a, it's just like notes and dedications. It says the Mediterranean of the mind, the title of the poem, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Donahue's last professional engagement and his last reading took place at the Almacera Dea, where Christopher and Marisa North, offered poetry courses in Spain. My course started the day that Michael and his family left, and only a week later we heard it was death. During the days that followed on a writing retreat, I wrote for him this poem of place, a place so infused with its presence. So, and then there's also quotations from Federico Garcia Lorca's lecture, Play and Theory of the Duenda. And I think that might be where the entire yeah. part is from. But it was kind of yeah, it was kind of interesting to just read it without any, um, without finding out what, what her basis was and just kind of letting that 
just the words inform it, but um, I guess that there's a little background. So she's just kind of struck with his death and maybe that brings kind of a, um, a solemn tone to that middle. Sure, but actually the, uh, let me make sure that I'm, before I make some quote, some make some proclamation that I cannot back up with the text. Well, before you <laughs> do that, I think I'll go off of what Anna said, and I think I like that it's kind of in there, because I think it kind of almost gives it a, like, a little section of, like, reverence and yeah. respect before it continues on yeah. to, like, being, like, a dreamy, a dreamy beautiful. This is all beautiful. Gives it a little, little like levity. Yeah. yeah. It makes me appreciate it more. That it's not just like a, this light and airy poem that's mm -hmm. about all this beauty, beautiful land and people. It's like, well, there's, you know, this reverent tone. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's still possible that it is uh, uh, doing what I was thinking it was doing, where they're kind of romanticizing through a good share. And um, then in the areas where it's italicized, that it kind of takes us to an alternate true, I don't know that it's truer, but a different reality. Because it starts on 31, and actually, like you said, it's long. And the last page is 42, and there's a big italicized section on 42 as well. And it kind of takes you in a different place on that page. It says... 42? Yeah, on 42... With back to the italics, and it's at the top. Mm -hmm. It says, I do not think any great artist works in a fever. One returns from inspiration as from a foreign country. Um, and so that kind of made me feel like inspiration, she says, is like being in a foreign country. Inspiration is what writes a lot of like poems. Um, uh, great works of art, novels, mm -hmm. any kind of writing of that nature, artistic endeavors are mm -hmm. this bit of inspiration. And it comes from a romanticized place. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it rarely comes from like this stark reality. You rarely, you, I mean, people do, but you don't usually like pick up your, you know, piece of paper and your pencil and you go outside and like look at some people and just start writing about them as you're observing them. You tend to go out into the world, observe the world, go home, let it kind of rest and meld in your mind, and you, then you draw from these experiences later as you reflect on them. Mm -hmm. And by that very act of kind of taking that step away from it and drawing and mm -hmm. reflecting on it later, you're romanticizing it. Oh, yeah. You're, you're sure. forgetting aspects that don't fit into your story of the world or how you want to remember it. Yeah. And you're, you know, so she's saying here that, yeah, you know, that's why I think, oh, then we get into this part of how, what happens when they're dying and it's in italics. And then we get into the back and it's mm -hmm. in italics. And again, she's saying, you know, that one returns from their inspiration, like they're coming back from a foreign country and, mm -hmm. you know, so I don't know. Yeah. It's I interesting. I mean, there's a lot of ways it could be read, but. I don't know if everybody else feels this way, but I feel like most, if not all the poems that we've talked about so far, we've kind of, or at least in my mind, I keep making this like similar connection of like us as readers just being the outsiders yeah. of that. And it just, it just keeps popping up to me, yeah. like with your poem, because what you were talking about is like writing about people and then Anna's poem was a about our author that we're discussing, yeah. writing about that experience. And then with Anna's, 
Or not Hannah's, sorry. Gloria's person is sitting across from us. Gloria's person is the house we're in. Um, yeah, the person who owns the house. Um, Lauren's poem just about like the needing to have a feeling or connection to something to yeah. actually have an opinion or an yeah. idea or anything from it. To get something out of it. To get something yeah. out of it. And so I just, I don't know, I just wanted to see if you guys kind of felt the same I like way. That. Yeah. Because I feel like we've kind of just, in my head, I feel like we've cohesively agreed that we are very much outsiders to mm-hmm. this text, which is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. In any way, shape, or form. Well, so speaking of it, do you care if I read one poem real quick? Thinking of it mm-hmm. from that, like how we approach it. I'll go to that one that you liked and that I liked and that I talked about. I think it's page, I think, 46. Let me see. Oh, 48. Overblown Roses. Okay. And this is that kind of where I'm saying like a perspective thing, too, because I kind of took a different meaning to it. Mm-hmm. Um, just from my own experiences. So, overblown roses. She held one up, twirling it in her hand, as if to show me how the world began and ended in perfection. I was stunned. How could she make a rose so woebegone? Couldn't, couldn't silk stand stiff? And how could a child, otherwise convinced of her mother's taste, know what to think? It's over... It's over And again, we're getting into some metallics here. Um, It's overblown, she smiled. I love roses when they're past their best. Overblown roses. The words rang in my head, making sense, as I suddenly saw afresh the rose now, the rose ahead, where a petal clings to a last breath, where my mother's flesh and mine, going the same way, may still be seen as beautiful if these words are said. And what I was telling Lauren earlier was that when I read that, I kind of looked at it as um, overblown roses being like the perfect rose. When you see like, you know, the perfect rose just in the prime of its blossom, you know, the most spectacular it's ever going to be. And that becomes overblown, like the significant rose to us. And it kind of is, I think, poking a finger and saying, what about the value of of the rose that's aged? And by rose, equate the woman, woman. you know, Um, the woman who is in the prime of her beauty, the 20 something who is, you know, just peaked in her perfection. And this becomes the role model of what, you know, womanly perfection is. And then as she gets into the older woman to the elderly woman, the grandmother or whatever. um, And it's kind of like, Oh, her beauty is, Faded. Yeah. I mean, we say that we say faded beauty, and you know, well, the yeah. rose is faded. You know, um, so I thought it was kind of poking at that a little bit. You know, that she is seeing that this rose, where there's just a few little petals still clinging, you know, to it, still have like this great beauty or perfection to them. You know, and that it's overblown to only see the perfection in like that perfect rose. I don't know. That's yeah, I, like that. I like that too, and That's, I like also. Because my mind instantly went to, you know, like a pristine rose is only pristine for a couple of days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you've ever grown roses, they, mm-hmm. they only stay that good for maybe two, three days max. But then like the older rose, like overblown, assuming you mean aged. Yeah. yeah. Um, like that's, that's how you make like pressed flowers. That's how you make 
like potpourri, mm -hmm. you know, like it has so much, like the pristine flower has so many more uses once it's gone past its prime. Mm -hmm. like it smells like, if you've ever smelled like a rose that's just past its thing, it smells way stronger. Yeah, yeah it than, does. The, the aroma know. becomes really unique and more yeah. earthy. And, yeah. yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I, yeah, I like I like also like the connection of, to the woman. And yeah, like how dogs. do you decide when something is at its best yeah. and when it's past yeah. its best? If there's all these different uses for it at different points, yeah. In time, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Also, like dried roses. That's how you make like tea. Like, you know, there's a pristine rose. Yeah, like I said it's only good for two, three days. Yeah, but. A rose at any age, other age, basically, can be yeah. used for so many different mm -hmm. things. Well, and think of it like if we aren't thinking of it as a woman, but just think of it as a rose. You know, like in the early stage, um, depending on what kind of a rose it is, like if it's the single petal ones, you know, or it's just like a ring of, of petals around it, like mm -hmm. the wild roses are as opposed yeah. to the real ornamental ones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's in those early days you know, and up to a certain point that you'll just see them loaded with bees. Okay, oh, so yeah. they're getting pollen, they're getting nectar, they're enjoying it. Like you said, then it reaches a point where it kind of goes past that, but that is when the rose hip yeah. forms. Well, birds don't have any use for the for the rose that's in that early stage when the mm -hmm. bees are swarming to it. Mm -hmm. But in the winter, when the rose hips are there, it gives food to the birds, but you don't see the bees around. So like you said, how do we allot what's the most important time you know, to something like that, because each, and so we get kind of like, the overblown to me is like putting too much emphasis on, it's only its perfection is at this mm -hmm. point, yet it's got perfection in all of its, all of its stages, oh. or all of its, yeah. I yeah. also like that we've had our own, like, birds and the bees conversation just there. <laughs> <laughs> birds do it, bees do it. Yeah, I was thinking, speaking of roses, Mimi does it. Could talk about the meanest flower and its Ooh. reference to Wordsworth. Mm -hmm. Um, the from imitations of immorality, mm -hmm. immortality, not immorality. It's Lauren's fault. She took a scalp out. <laughs> of early childhood and that's like uh, a lot of what that first giant giant poem is about mm -hmm. um, but the meanest flower comes from the lines oh I wrote it so poorly the other day that it's going to be hard to read from Wordsworth it says thanks to the human heart by which we live thanks to its tenderness its joys and fears to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. And so the fact that she put that as her title and makes references to him, I just kind of wanted to talk about that mm -hmm. and what the meanest flower means. And now that we're talking about roses, because meanest yeah. could also mean like something that's, that's weathered or... That's true. It's prime, I guess. Right? Mm -hmm. Which is, would be um, well, exactly. a tie-in with that poem. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh. 
And it could be a reference to age. And in that first poem, she talks a lot about the difference between a child's way of viewing things and and, and um, someone with more experience and in more years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the first line of the of the very first part of the poem on page eleven of the meanest flowers, you get that age factor in there. Yeah. Um, she says, "April opens the year with the first vowel." Opens it this year for my 60th. Mm -hmm. Truth to tell, I'm ashamed what a child I am. Still so ignorant, so immune to facts, you mm -hmm. know. And that, you know, even mm -hmm. as we age and, mm -hmm. you know, we still find that there's so much we don't know. Yeah. You know, we think sometimes at certain phases in life that I know so much about this. And, you know, I have this all figured out but we never get it figured out. Yeah. You know, we're going to go right up till the last day. If we live to be a hundred going, there's still so many things I don't fully understand yeah. and I can't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And every step along the way is important. That's mm -hmm. like that rose. There's no, yeah. no moment the, of pure perfection. The rose has great, you know, um, what what it gives to the world is great in a lot of different stages, be it the yeah. bees, be it the birds, be it, you know, a seed that drops to the ground and plants a new plant, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the case may be. So, you know, how can we choose yeah. what is important and how can the rose ever, like, fully realize itself? I mean, how do we fully realize ourselves? Mm -hmm. It's We're like this ongoing work in progress that will never, you know, never reach its, like, Perfection, yeah, yeah. like it's or like, every day is a perfection in itself. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. I like that it talks about kind of looking at, <laughs> like the importance of looking at the world as a child might, just like keeping the wonder um, there. And the last uh, couple stanzas of that poem, it's on page twenty-two. She um, references Wordsworth again. As I think of Wordsworth's hermit in the woods, that shriveling in the heart that leads one deep into solitude, the longing for it, as if life were not already too lonely. And a grandchild learning to shred a cat's catkin, as you once did, no more to be cherished than her catkin stems. I'm entrusted with them, in one hand, bald a nest of rusted tails, in the other, stripped stalks that I'll gratefully chuck from the train. Poetry's on the run, from exhaustion the inability to imagine a larger world and one too sick to be hurt into words. Be kind, sweet April, you with your mouth, first vowel open. Like the poetry's on the run, that from from exhaustion, that kind of was just such a that's such a cool vibe. Mm -hmm. I'm not I I'm not sure what exactly it speaks to. I think maybe it speaks to the fact that like we're really struggling to uh, see, see beauty, like keep seeing beauty and wonder in a world that's increasingly not from everyone's perspective, I guess, but um, a lot of people just view it as like darkening or mm -hmm. just getting more volatile. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, there's a sadness too, you know, because here she says the inability to imagine a larger world. You know, and that is something yeah. that we get into a lot in our class and, you know, when we're discussing, like, how we're viewing things, like calling things exotic, mm -hmm. you know, um, terms, you know, that we use to describe people and places and things and cultures, um, because somehow 
were unable to imagine this world um, that's bigger than than our personal experiences. Mm -hmm. you know, fully imagine it. I mean, we can kind of like take a stab at it, looking at, at a picture in a museum yeah. or something. We can think that we're seeing something, but we're unable to really fully imagine the world mm -hmm. beyond has been another episode of the meanest flowers discussion circle thing thanks for listening <laughs>